0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And over uh, on Twitter, a listener named Steve sent me a message asking me to do an episode about submarines, and I was sure... I had done a full episode about submarines before, but then after I searched the archives, the best I could find was an episode I did with Scott Benjamin about personal submarines. That was more about the expensive and, frankly, dangerous toys of people who have way more money than they have self-preservation instincts. Uh, So in this episode, I'm really going to cover the history Of submarines and how they work. Actually, this is the first of a couple of episodes because the history is pretty long. And while I could have summarized the early history of submarines, I find that that development is really fascinating. I mean, you think about what it would take to risk everything by building a a contraption that can travel under the water where, and you may not know this, people can't normally breathe. So, We're going to look at the early history of submarines, not even getting into the 20th century in this episode. Spoiler alert. So part of what makes this a fun topic to research is that you really get to see when humans first began to suss out why stuff floats or sinks. Archimedes, or Archie, as I like to call him, wrote down the earliest account of why this is, at least the earliest that we know of. There may have been earlier accounts, but this is the one that we know about. He described a force of a body partially submerged in a fluid that would then push that body upward, and the story goes that he figured this out while taking a bath, that he figured out that this force that would hold a body up in water... Uh, was something that came to him while he was, um, he himself was actually in water. And one of the the principles that describes this force, it's called uh, buoyancy. Essentially, it's saying that the amount of force that is exerted on the submerged object is equal to the weight of the water that the object is displacing. Now, as a kid, I remember being a bit confused about this concept because you take a look at stuff around you and you see what floats or sinks and it. It's not always, you know, uh, intuitive to a child or, if I'm going to be honest, to a young adult. It took me a while to grasp this thing because, you know, like rocks sink in the water, right? A Rock sinks. But then you have giant ships, like enormous, huge ships that are clearly much heavier than rocks are, and those float. Now, in my kid brain, I couldn't reconcile this. I mean, clearly, it had to be the weight of stuff that determined whether or not it sank, right? Obviously, now, that's not correct, but it took a while before my brain could wrap itself around the reasons why. So the reason is all about displacement, water displacement. If the object displaces enough water so that the weight of the water it displaces is greater than the weight of the object, then the object will float. If the object displaces too little water so that the displaced water weighs less than the weight of the object, then it will sink. And really it comes down to density. Not so much weight, but really density. So if the density of the object is less than that of water, it will float. If it is greater than water, It will sink and density and mass are pretty easy to confuse for goofballs like me mass is how much stuff an object has you know how much stuff is to that particular thing a chair has a certain mass but that's just part of an object's physical features you also have to take into account the density which is what you can think of as the distribution of mass within an object so a dense object is going to have its mass packed in more tightly than a less dense object of the same size. So you have to think about the size, shape, and mass of a thing before you'll know whether it will displace enough water to keep it afloat. Archimedes actually used water displacement to determine density as well. So the basic formula for density is you take an object's mass and you divide it by the object's volume. And you would use scales to determine an object's mass, right? You would have Uh, Weights that you knew equaled out to a specific amount of mass, like a kilogram weight, for example, and you would weigh an object against that. But unless the object is of a standard sort of shape, like, you know, a box, you might not have a, a neat and nifty formula you could use to describe its volume. You know, if it's an irregular shape, it's tricky. How do you figure out the volume of an irregularly shaped object? Well, you could use water, And that's because we know that water behaves with displacement in a very consistent way under specific conditions. So one milliliter of water will occupy one cubic centimeter of space. And this is specifically when water is at standard conditions, which a standard temperature is zero degrees Celsius and standard uh, pressure would be at one atmosphere. And that's because uh, we want to make sure we're using standard conditions because, you know, obviously... Water molecules will move apart as you heat them up, so you'll get some expansion. And more air pressure adds compressive elements, although to be fair, water is extremely difficult to compress. And that would change the, 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 uh, the measurements slightly. So under standard conditions, we have this idea that water occupies one milliliter uh, or one milliliter of water rather will occupy one cubic centimeter of space. So an object completely submerged in water displaces or offsets a volume of water equal to the volume of the object. So if you put an object in water at standard conditions and you have a a little, you know, measuring stick there that lets you read how much water has been displaced and you see that the water's been displaced by 100 milliliters, that would mean that the object you put in the water has a volume of 100 cubic centimeters one milliliter equals one cubic centimeter. So then you would take the object's mass, you would divide it by that 100 cubic centimeters, and that would tell you what the object's density is. Now, water's density at 20 degrees Celsius is one gram per cubic centimeter. So if the object's density is less than that, it'll float. If it's greater than that, it'll sink. This is why giant warships made out of metal can cruise along the waves And while they weigh a lot, the water they displace uh, has much greater density. So the boats will stay afloat. But what if you designed a vessel that could travel under the water? Or better yet, you designed a vessel that could have some sort of control mechanism to allow it to either float or dive under the water. On top of that, there's another pesky problem to work out, besides figuring out how to get a vessel to go above or below the waves. assuming. This vessel is also meant to hold people. There has to be some sort of method for getting air to the people inside, as we don't tend to function too well if we can't breathe. So that also was a problem that had to be solved. Now, since ancient times, we knew we could bring air down with us underwater, but that air would only last a short while before the oxygen levels were too low to be useful, and we would asphyxiate. Uh, We didn't have a grasp on oxygen and carbon dioxide just yet, but we did know that you couldn't just keep breathing the same air indefinitely. Eventually, you would have exhausted all the breathable air and you would need to resurface. Aristotle wrote about diving bells, which are containers that could be lowered with the open side of the container facing the floor of the ocean or the lake or river or whatever, And they could be dense enough to sink even with the added buoyancy of the captured air inside the container. And water pressure would keep the air from escaping the container. And he wrote, quote, They enable the divers to respire equally well by letting down a cauldron, for this does not fill with water, but retains the air, end quote. So essentially a diving bell. And that was way back in the 4th century BCE, but that was also before we had sussed out a way to replenish the air in the diving bell. So while you could use it to go underwater, you couldn't hang out for very long before you had consumed all the breathable air and you needed to resurface. So another problem is that water pressure that I just talked about. It would compress the air inside a diving bell, so the air would take up less space inside the bell... And the bottom of the bell, assuming you're looking at it with the bottom being the open side, would fill a little bit with water. The water would come up a little bit along the inside of the container, which means you have a reduced work area as well, a reduced amount of useful area where you as a person could inhabit and still breathe. One way to fix that would be to have a supply of pressurized air continue to come down into the bell. But it would take centuries to get to that point. If you just included, say, a breathing tube from the bell to the surface, well, that wouldn't do any good at all. The water would just go right up the bell and up the tube a great deal. It's like if you put a straw inside a glass of liquid. You know, unless you cap the end of the straw, the liquid goes up the straw. You don't have any way of pressurizing it to keep the water from coming in. So you would have to have this pressurized system, and it would take hundreds of years to get to that point. So when it comes to getting really great details about the origin of submarines, we hit some pretty big snags. There are reports about them, but they aren't necessarily the most reliable, a lot of them are second or third hand reports, and they don't tend to have a whole lot of information about what exactly happened or how it happened. But the general consensus is that a design for what would be the first submarine that we have on record came from a guy named William Bourne. Bourne was an English mathematician way back in the 16th century, and the record of his design dates to 1578. So just to give you a little bit of context, at that time, England was ruled by Queen Elizabeth I, and Shakespeare was just 14 years old. Born's design called for a totally-enclosed wooden boat. And then covering this wooden boat would be oiled or greased leather that would help keep the vessel watertight. In order to reduce buoyancy, Born's proposal was to have hand-cranked vices that connected to the interior of the boat's hull. Now, in some descriptions that I've read, It said that Boren intended to use the vices to pull the sides in a little bit, like you're you're squeezing the boat from the inside, pulling the inner walls inward and reducing the overall volume of the boat, thus increasing your density. An illustration seems to indicate that the idea was actually to have an inner chamber inside this vessel and that... Uh, The inner chamber, the innermost chamber where a person would be, would be waterproofed. And then you would have space between this inner chamber and the the hull or the outer sides of the boat. So you would have this uh, secondary chamber on either side of the place where the the operator would sit. And so the vises would actually pull the boat's uh, sections of hull inward and allow those parts of the the boat to be flooded with water. So you're essentially pulling open, almost like a trap door, you're pulling in sides of the the hull of the boat. Water rushes in into a watertight section that uh, surrounds the inner chamber where the operator sits, and that would increase the density of the overall vessel. That's what would allow you to sink beneath the waves. If that's the case, I'm not sure what the plan was to return buoyancy to the boat because you would need to have some way to purge the water out of the space between the hull and the inner chamber while sealing the boat closed again. You have to have some way to force the water back out, otherwise you're not going to you're not going to decrease the density and thus increase the buoyancy and be able to rise back up above the waves. And maybe that's why Born never made the darn thing, as far as we can tell. Instead, his design would remain an intriguing thought experiment for the time being. Skip ahead a monarch to the time of James I of England, and we do get to what most people consider to be the first submarine. A Dutch inventor named Cornelius van Drebbel reportedly built a submarine, which he called a diving boat, in the early 1620s. Like Bourne's proposed craft, Drebel's submarine was made of wood and coated with greased leather. Propulsion came from oars that extended out the sides of the vessel. Uh, these oars, you know, the, the parts where the oar extended out from inside the boat, those had to be coated with flaps of leather to create a waterproof seal. Because otherwise, they're going to get water coming into your submarine. That's bad business. According to accounts, it could dip as far as 12 or even 15 feet beneath the surface of the water, and Drebbel demonstrated the craft along the Thames River in London. Supposedly, even Jimmy the King took a ride at one point. Now, if Drebbel made any detailed records of how this boat actually worked, they have long since been lost to time. We're not entirely certain what mechanism he relied upon to get the boat to go underwater, Some people have suggested that the boat had some form of ballast barrels or bladders that could be opened, which would allow water to come inside of them, increasing the overall density of the boat, and thus causing it to sink beneath the waves. Though I've not seen any description of how the vessel would then expel the water to regain buoyancy, Uh, it might just jettison the ballast, in which case then it would rise up, its buoyancy would be returned. The earliest records I can find of any kind of ballast system actually comes 200 years after this particular example. Others suggest that perhaps the sloped shape of the bow, that's the front part of the boat, acted as a sort of reverse airplane wing, that when the boat began to move forward, the slope would cause the water to flow over the top of the boat, and that would push the boat downward into the water. Uh, and that maybe with a system of weights could have added a bit more downward force. I find that particular idea, the idea of forward motion creating the downward force to allow the boat to dive, to be a little unlikely, simply because I don't think you'd be able to go very fast with oars. I don't think you could row fast enough to make that downward motion strong enough to keep the boat underwater. You might bob a bit in the Thames, but I don't think you would be able to go 12 to 15 feet beneath the surface. That's just my own gut feeling there, because I don't think you could get up the speed necessary to maintain that. But we just don't really know for sure what the mechanism was. Drebbel made sure that the vessel had a steady supply of air by attaching two air hoses to the boat And the other ends of the hoses were attached to floats that would drift on the surface of the Thames above the boat. Now, I'm assuming that there must have been some method of pumping the air down into the boat, because otherwise you would have a problem. See, carbon dioxide is denser than air, which means you need a way to force breathable air down the hose to the interior of the submarine. Otherwise, it would become saturated with CO2 and you would eventually suffocate. This was something an inventor named uh, De Lorena, an Italian inventor, had figured out way back in 1535. He made a diving bell with an apparatus that would replenish pressurized, breathable air into the bell. Though he took the secret of that invention to the grave. Uh, One other person reportedly understood how it worked, but had sworn an oath never to reveal it. So we don't know the precise methodology used in that case, either. Now, I'm sure it got stuffy and humid inside Drebbel's boat, but at least you could get some air down there, and the crew wouldn't automatically just die of asphyxiation. So, the submarine as a working, though primitive, concept dates back about 500 years. And I'm sure it will come as a shock to learn that since then, we've made a few advancements. When we come back, I'll talk a bit more about some of the earliest subs and technology that made them work. But first, Let's take a quick break. Okay, so by the 1700s, several inventors had experimented with different designs for submersible vehicles. And they weren't really practical craft just yet, though the potential military applications were immediately apparent. So this was during the age when countries were imposing their will on others, primarily through naval supremacy. Countries like Spain and England in particular were known for doing this. And a common tactic was to create a naval blockade around a port city to prevent ships from leaving or arriving at that port city. Creating a submersible that could secretly approach a blockade and disrupt it, typically through the use of explosives that some poor submariner would have to try and attach to those boats, was an obvious application for a submarine. It would be an incredibly useful war tool. In 1747, we get the earliest published account of a ballast bladder, which some unknown inventor suggested using bags made out of goat skin to take in water so that a submarine could dive below the waves. And the bags would have a twisting rod attached to them that would extend into the interior of the submarine itself. So the submariner could grab hold of the rod and give it a good twist. And that in turn would twist the ballast bag. And that would force water out of the ballast bag. It would have a valve on the end of the bag so that the water couldn't just come right back in. And that would decrease the vessel's density and allow it to surface. This was a predecessor for ballast tanks that essentially do the same thing, though you don't typically have to hand-operate them these days. A few decades later, we have the first use of a submarine in war. That was the American Revolutionary War. There was actually a submarine in the American Revolutionary War. The submarine was called the Turtle. And this was a pretty modest submarine. It's not like the Red October or anything like that. It could hold precisely one person. It was the design of David Bushnell, a, an engineering student who was studying at Yale at the time. He and his brother Ezra built the dang darn thing. The Encyclopedia Britannica describes the shape of the submarine as a, quote, walnut standing on end End quote. And if you see illustrations or the recreations of this particular submarine, you'll see exactly what they mean. It does kind of look like uh, a sort of oval-shaped submarine large enough to hold a single person on the inside. Facing forward from the submarine, at least from the perspective of the pilot, would be the propulsion system, which was a screw propeller. And it worked on a similar principle as the Archimedes screw pump, which was used to lift water from areas of low elevation to areas of high elevation. The submarine operator would crank a handle in order to turn this screw propeller, which would effectively pull the submarine through the water. And then with the other hand, the operator would control a rudder that is in the back of the vessel to provide the steering mechanism. The vessel also had a secondary screw propeller, one that was oriented vertically, which meant it was meant to to help the submariner navigate vertically through the water. So if you were to dive beneath the waves, you would use the vertical screw propeller to push you down further into the water or to pull you up. To actually drive the turtle had a chamber that would be flooded with opening a valve. And that would decrease the ship's buoyancy, so it would start to sink. Uh, To surface, the operator could work some pumps inside the turtle that would push this water back out of that chamber. It also had ballast both inside and attached to the outside of the vessel that was used to make sure the craft would maintain the proper orientation in the water and not just, you know, start flipping over or tilting to the side, which would be disastrous to the operator. So the weights were really meant to make sure that it maintained that up-down orientation. Air came in through a pair of snorkels, and the snorkels had lids that would close whenever the vessel were to go underwater. Windows on the hatch above the, the operator would allow some light to come into the interior of the vessel, although it was meant primarily to be operated at night. And the design also meant that if you went underwater, You would have a limited supply of air because the snorkels now would be closed and you would also have much less light to to work from. The intent was to operate so that only the hatch would be above the surface of the water for most of a mission so that the operator would still be able to get a look around, seeing where they were in relation to a target. Uh, They would also be able to breathe because the snorkels would be exposed to the air. And then the operator would only dive with the submarine uh, in order to avoid being seen or when it came time to actually attach an explosive device to the target. To do that, the ship had a drill that was also pointed up from the top of the turtle. And this was to drill a hole in a blockade ship. And then in that hole, the operator could attach a a line for a gunpowder charge. And this gunpowder charge was in the form of a mine with an ingenious clockwork fuse mechanism, which I'll describe in just a second. Now, Bushnell had already conducted experiments while at Yale to find ways to make gunpowder explode underwater, which, as I understand it, caused a bit of a stir on campus. His mine was most likely a keg that was about 2.5 feet long, or about 0.76 meters, and one and a half feet in diameter, or 0.46 meters, and it could hold about 150 pounds, or about 68 kilograms, of gunpowder. To create a timing mechanism for the explosive, he actually worked with a pair of clockmakers. Uh, They were known as uh, Phineas Pratt and Isaac Doolittle. And I just want to say that I'm really loving these names so far. Anyway, together, Pratt, Doolittle, and Bushnell, came up with a clockwork device that would trigger a flintlock mechanism. It's the kind that you would find on a flintlock musket. And the flintlock would have a, a piece of flint and steel that would come together when the when the mechanism activated. It would uh, spring shut, and that would cause a spark. And the idea was that the spark would then ignite a priming charge of gunpowder. The priming charge would, in turn, ignite the explosive charge. So The idea was that the sub-operator would set a timer on this device and attach the mine to a ship using the hole that had been drilled into the ship's hull, and then they would try and get the heck out of Dodge. They would be turning that hand crank frantically to move the propeller in order to get a safe distance away from the explosive. The Team's mine design would, in theory, give the operator enough time to get the heck away from the exploding ship, and it was a novel idea, but it turned out, in practice, to fall short of expectations. The Turtles' target was a big one for its main mission. It was the HMS Eagle, which happened to be the flagship of the British Admiral Richard Howe. as the brother to General William Howe of the British troops. But the Turtles' drill turned out to be incapable of cutting through the eagle's copper-plated hull. By that time, dawn was breaking and the turtle's pilot, a soldier named Ezra Lee, was in danger of being discovered. So he attempted to sneak away, but he was spotted and uh, the eagle let out a pursuit boat. Lee decided that well, the best thing for me to do is to set the timer on this mine because if they're going to get me, maybe they'll get the mine too and we'll all go up together. So then he detached the mine from the turtle and the mine did explode. It did not blow up the pursuing boat, but it did scare them off and it gave him the opportunity to actually make an escape. The turtle would go on two more unsuccessful missions, uh, one of them under the operation of Phineas Pratt himself. But nothing ever quite came of it, and the British eventually sunk a ship that happened to be carrying the turtle, and the submarine was lost in that particular uh, uh, engagement. But while the turtle failed in its mission, the potential was obvious. They just had to refine the technology. Moving ahead a couple of decades, we come to Robert Fulton, an American engineer and inventor who perhaps is best known, maybe he's most famously associated with steamboats. But in the early 1800s, he also developed an early submarine and was also perhaps the most American of all classifications, a capitalist. In fact, you could call him an arms dealer. I'll explain. So in 1797, 1797, Fulton was living in France, and he goes to Paris, and he pitches this idea for a submarine that he calls the Nautilus. Jules Verne would take note of this decades later. France and Britain have been involved in a series of military conflicts for more than a century. Uh, In fact, some modern historians refer to this as the Second Hundred Years' War. But the French looked at Fulton's proposal, and they said, mais non because they thought it was a dirty, underhanded way to fight a war, because this was a time when people thought war was somehow better if everyone could see what everyone was doing all the time and sneaky stuff was considered to be generally unfair. The mental gymnastics humans go through in order to determine what is and isn't a fair way to kill each other never really fails to confuse me. And for the record, I'm pretty much against the whole killing thing entirely, but I realize that the world we live in makes that an impractical philosophy to be applied at large in every situation. Anyway, Fulton appealed the decision and said, Well, hey, what about um, how about I build this sucker pretty much on my own dime? And in return, if we use it to attack British ships, you can pay me and that that payment will be based upon how big the ship was how many guns it carried and for british shipping vessels you can give me a portion of whatever you end up taking from those shipping vessels and the french minister said d'accord which means okay because heck i mean france wouldn't have to spend a single franc on this and they would only have to pay out a portion of any spoils if the thing actually worked so by 1800 Fulton had the Nautilus ready to go, and he wanted to demonstrate its capabilities on the Seine, the river that runs through Paris. And unlike the turtle, the Nautilus had an iron-ribbed hull coated with copper sheets. It also had a conning tower, or con. Now, a ship's con is a designated area. It's typically raised above other areas from which the commander of the ship can control or con the ship by issuing commands to the crew. Future submarines would incorporate the con within a structure on the top side of the submarine called the sail or the fin, until technological advancements would render such an arrangement unnecessary. The Nautilus also had a collapsible mast and a sail system so that it could deploy a fan sail, very similar to what would be found on a Chinese junk ship at the time. This would allow the Nautilus to operate more like a classic ship when it surfaced. The Nautilus was a cigar or teardrop shape, taking the basic form that we would see uh, used in a lot of submarines moving forward. It was nearly seven meters long and two meters wide. They had horizontal wings or planes that were meant to aid in directing the ship's incline or decline as it was moving through the water. A section of the keel was a hollow chamber that could be flooded to increase the ship's density so it could dive under the water. Hand-powered pumps could push the water back out of the hull and thus return the buoyancy to the ship and allow it to rise back up and and surface. Propulsion, once again, came in the form of a hand-cranked screw propeller. And Fulton claimed that the ship could operate safely at a depth of 30 feet or 9 meters, although a lot of people were skeptical of that. Also, whenever he was doing demonstrations on the Seine, he always made a point to go in the same direction as the current of the river itself which gave the sense that this boat was actually able to move much faster than it really could in normal conditions. The attack mechanism on this particular submarine was a spike with an eye in it. So you can think of it like a giant sewing needle, but attached to the eye was a cable, and attached to the cable was a mine, an explosive. And the mine was designed to explode upon coming into contact with an enemy ship's hull. Eventually, Fulton realized that he'd never build up the speed and force necessary to penetrate a ship's hull with this spike. And so he decided instead to use a towed explosive device called a carcass. Now, it turned out to be moot, because when Fulton tried to use the Nautilus in a real-world setting, it just couldn't keep up with the ships it was targeting. Ships could spot it and then maneuver out of the way, and this Nautilus was so slow it could never catch up. The French eventually canceled all contracts with Fulton, who then did the incredibly American thing that I mentioned earlier. He switched sides. He had been marketing the submarine to the French to use against the British. So then he turned around to the British to sell them essentially the very same technology to be used against the French. Robert Fulton, pioneering arms dealer. His attempts at using the submarine for the British were just as fruitless as they had been for the French. And the Brits were able to dominate the seas with their more conventional navy. And ultimately, Fulton's submarine would never see a successful wartime use, and he would scrap it, focusing on steamboats instead. The next advances in submarines would arrive before and during the Civil War in the United States. I'll explain more in just a second, but first, let's take another quick break. In 1855, a Bavarian engineer named Wilhelm Bauer built a submarine for Russia. It was called the Sea Devil and it would require a crew of about a dozen sailors. Rather than a hand crank propeller, this submarine used a treadmill to provide the power needed to drive the propeller's motion, with four sailors providing the foot power to do so. Bauer had built an earlier submarine back in Bavaria, but it had sunk on a test run, and Bauer and two other men aboard had to actually wait while the vessel slowly filled with water until it reached a point where the pressure on the inside of the submarine had equalized enough to open the hatch and swim out. Because the water pressure outside the submarine was so great, they could not physically open the hatch. The water weight was too great. Once the pressure equalized, they were able to open it. Can you imagine sitting in a sunken submarine for hours, waiting for there to be enough water in the submarine so you can open up that hatch? It must have been terrifying. For that reason, Bauer in his Sea Devil design included a primitive airlock so that the crew could escape if such an event were to occur with the new submarine. The Sea Devil had more than 130 successful dives, including one during the coronation ceremony in which the submarine carried a four-piece band which played beneath the water, Ultimately, the sea devil would end up getting stuck in the mud at the bottom of a river, reportedly because Russian admirals who had grown envious of Bauer's success and his favor with the Tsar gave Bauer incorrect information about the depth of the water. So according to the story, they sabotaged the effort. They said, oh no, the river isn't that, you know, the river is is something like 40 feet deep, when in fact the river was 20 feet deep. So then Bauer dives further than what he actually can and gets stuck in the mud. During the American Civil War, both the Union and the Confederacy experimented with submersible military boats. The Union, for example, constructed a ship called the USS Alligator, and the U.S. Navy gave the job of building the Alligator to a firm called Nephi and Levi, which in turn was following the designs of a French engineer named Brutus de Villeroy or de if you prefer. The purpose of the alligator was to counteract ironclad Confederate ships like the Merrimack. Now, this contract called for a ship that was, quote, at least 56 inches in width and 66 inches in height and 45 l- feet in length, That equals out to 1.4 meters wide, about 1.7 meters high, and about 13.7 meters long. The actual ship would end up being a little different from those dimensions, but you get the rough idea. The original propulsion system of the Alligator was a set of oars that would need to be operated by 22 sailors. That ended up being too slow and too crowded, so the Navy scrapped that in favor of a screw-type propeller. And not only did that propeller provide a faster means of propulsion, it also reduced the crew needed to operate the propulsion system to just eight sailors instead of 22. The submarine also had a diver lockout chamber, so again, a, a very primitive airlock system. And it also was said to have an air purification system, but I couldn't find really any information on how that actually worked. So I don't really know what that was, whether or not it was fully self-contained within the vessel, or it was a system of hoses and pumps, I don't know. Ultimately, the alligator would be more of a headache and also a sunken cost, literally, as it turned out, more than a viable military asset. It was being towed to South Carolina for its first true military mission, but during that trip, bad weather struck and the towing ship had to cut loose the submarine, which was unmanned at the time, and the submarine ultimately sank beneath the waves and was lost. The Confederacy built a semi-submerged to torpedo ship called the CSS David. This was not a true submarine. It could not dive beneath the water. But most of the ship's body was beneath the water. It, it was steam-powered, though, which meant that it had to have a smokestack to exhaust the smoke from the uh, the coal that they were burning in order to heat the boiler, And if you have a smokestack, it's got to stick out over the water, so that part was always exposed to the air. The ship was designed to hold four people, three sailors and a commanding officer. At the front end was a long spar that had a torpedo at the very tip. So this was a boat that was meant to ram a ship, and the tip of the spar would explode upon contact. The David attacked a Union ship called the USS New Ironsides on October 5, 1863. While the David struck New Ironsides and the torpedo exploded as planned, the resulting splash of water sloshed into the David and extinguished the fire for the ship's boiler. So now there was no power to the ship anymore. The commanding officer and one of the crew abandoned the ship. Technically, actually, two of the crew abandoned the ship the third crew member could not swim. So one of the other crew members swam back and then those two guys were actually able to relight the boiler fire and then eventually navigate away from the New Ironsides. Sailors aboard the New Ironsides had been firing with small arms to uh, against the David but didn't do any significant damage. So uh, those two guys got away. The other two were actually captured. The most famous Confederate submarine was called the H.L. Hunley, which was named after Horace Hunley, who designed it. The submarine used a spar torpedo, similar to what the David had used, but unlike the David, the Hunley could actually dive beneath the water. It carried a crew of eight, uh, including the commanding officer. Sometimes, some reports say it could hold up as as many as nine, but eight was the standard crew. And seven people were needed to hand-crank the propeller. The eighth would man a rudder to steer the vessel. The vessel was nearly 40 feet or 12 meters long. And inside, the height of the vessel was just over 4 feet 3 inches or 1.3 meters, which meant it was pretty cramped. And said that submarine, you could not stand, you know, tall in there. The ship had ballast tanks that could take on water and also expel it using hand-powered pumps. The ship also carried weights to help act as ballast and the weights could be quickly jettisoned if the ship needed to surface quickly. And it had a pair of snorkels that could bring fresh air into the vessel when it was close to the surface. Otherwise, the ship was cut off from fresh air. And according to some accounts, a single candle provided light inside the submarine. And it also provided a warning when the oxygen level was getting low because the candle's flame would begin to flicker. Part of the reason why the Hunley is famous is because it was responsible for a couple of dozen deaths, most of them Confederate soldiers. And remember, this was a Confederate ship. During the testing of the vessel, the Hunley sank twice. The first resulted in the loss of five crewmen, and in the second accident, all eight of the crew died, including Hunley himself, who was at the time acting as the commanding officer. Even with those two accidents during the testing phase, the Confederacy salvaged the ship, repaired it for use, and put it back into official military use. On February 17, 1864, the Hunley attacked the Union ship, the Housatonic, which was a wooden ship of war. And the Hunley's attack was technically successful. The Housatonic did sink and five crew of the Housatonic died as a result. However, the Hunley itself failed to return to port. And for many years, no one was really sure what had happened. I mean, clearly, somewhere along the line, the Hunley sank. But no one was sure where uh, or why. The Hunley, which was only in 30 feet or 9 meters of water, remained lost until 1995. Five years later, crews were able to retrieve the Hunley. Upon opening the submarine, the retrieval crews were surprised to find that the Hunley's crew were all at their stations, which suggested there was no effort to abandon ship. There was no struggle to try and open the hatches or anything like that, which raises the question, what actually killed the crew? Before the ship had been unsealed, the general theory was that the crew had either suffocated or they had drowned. But the submarine had no signs of any damage that would have caused them to drown. So the leading hypothesis now is that the shock wave from the exploding torpedo actually killed the crew. It ruptured blood vessels in their lungs and led to them becoming incapacitated and then ultimately dying. However, we do not know for sure what did it. Now, I'm going to conclude this episode with a description of one other early submarine built while the Union and Confederacy were both attempting to make practical use of submarines of their own. This ship's name was Le Plongeur, and this was designed by a man named Bourgeois in the late 1850s. Actual construction began in 1860, and it took a couple years for it to be finished. And as far as I can tell, It was the first submarine to use a mechanical means of propulsion rather than relying directly on manpower. The submarine carried containers of compressed air, and the air served many purposes. It provided the power needed to drive the propellers of the submarine. So, you know, we release the compressed air and it moves the mechanical elements that actually make the propeller turn. So this was an air-powered vehicle, and the sub's engine was an 80-horsepower engine, The compressed air would also keep pressure inside the submarine greater than it was outside the submarine, which was said to be good to keep water from seeping into the vessel, which for submarines is considered to be a bad thing. The tanks used to hold the compressed air were quite large. Uh, They needed to be to hold enough air to operate the submarine for longer than just a few moments. That meant that the size of the overall vessel had to be quite big as well. It measured 140 feet long, or nearly 43 meters, far larger than any submarine before it. It required a crew of 12 sailors to man the ship. And the innovations were pretty important, but the sub also had its share of drawbacks. One of those was that it initially relied on a series of pipes and pistons inside the submarine that could move water around to act as ballast and to help provide stability as the ship was diving or when it was climbing, Uh, and it was made more difficult because of the ship's size, right? You've got a ship that's very long, and you get a sort of lever effect, right? A small change at a pivot point would end up being a huge change toward either end of the submarine. And unfortunately, the system wasn't able to react very quickly to changes in the ship's orientation. So, a typical trip under the waves would be pretty harrowing. The ship would dive and the systems needed to correct its attitude in the water to level it out would very slowly kick in. And then the ship would start to level out, but it would overcorrect. And then it would start to climb and the whole cycle would start up again. Now the system would be trying to correct for the change in attitude where now it's, it's tilted up instead of down and the process would keep going. So you had this seesaw effect in the water as you're riding on the submarine it could not maintain a level heading with zero buoyancy and so ultimately the project was scrapped because it was just too risky there needed to be more innovation in the field to stabilize the submarine so that it wouldn't be so unmanageable underwater now in our next episode we'll continue down the path of history to explore how submarine technology advanced over time and how modern submarines work today but there's a lot more to cover, and we'll probably skip around a little bit because in some cases we're talking about evolutionary changes where it's you know, important changes, important significant innovations in submarine technology, but to cover every single one would be pretty exhausting. So I'll probably lump them together in sections but that's for the next episode if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of tech stuff send me a message the email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com drop by our website that's techstuffpodcast.com you'll find links to where we are on social media you'll also find an archive of all of our past episodes up there and there's a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.